This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On this Highlights episode, excerpts from seven Historian's Podcasts that debuted in February, March, and April of 2021. Hi, this is Jim Richmond. Today I'm on Historian's Podcast with Bob Cudmore. I'll be talking about the current state of history in Saratoga County and some of the initiatives and activities that we're doing to keep history alive during the pandemic. Jim Richmond is an author and independent historian and has been one of the prime movers in the Saratoga County History Roundtable, which has kept Saratoga County, New York history alive during the pandemic. What is the Saratoga County History Roundtable, Jim? We founded the uh, Saratoga County History Roundtable in uh, 2018, and we've been loosely associated with the uh, Saratoga County Historical Society at the Brookside Museum. And it was really an attempt to uh, encourage history buffs uh, to get together, share history, listen to uh, presentations, but also participate directly in uh, researching the history of uh, Saratoga County. Um, Mm -hmm. It's been a very successful event. Of course, everything changed in 2020, where we were no longer able to conduct meetings. So we have done other activities during 2020 to try to continue to reach uh, people. uh, So so your theme has become keeping history alive in Saratoga County during the uh, pandemic. Uh, What are some of the things that you've been doing? Yeah, well, the first thing we did is we realized we couldn't have any, uh, any meetings during the period, of course. So we wanted to have a way to reach out to our members, and we do have over 250 members on our, uh, on our mailing list. So we uh, came up with the, uh, the idea or the plan to uh, publish weekly articles through uh, our email list and also appeared on, appearing on Facebook and, uh, and been picked up and publicized in the New York Almanac, uh, local uh, newspapers such as Saratoga Today and so on. This has been a uh, success for a number of reasons. It connects with our members on a weekly basis. It also allows local historians, town historians and history buffs in general, to be able to get their stories out to the uh, uh, the public at large uh, during a time when it was no longer possible to meet. And this has been successful, right? I mean, the town historians and the other uh, local history buffs have been participating? Yes, we've been very fortunate. Um, we started in March of uh, 2020, and we're continuing uh, into the new year, and we've had 40 weekly consecutive, art- consecutive weekly articles, and we have over 25 different authors that have written those articles. So uh, it's been a success both for uh, the preservation of, uh, of county history, but also for engaging uh, the town historians who have also been affected by the uh, Uh, the pandemic. They can't get into their offices and they can't reach out to their normal uh, town historical societies or groups. So this has been a way to uh, keep us together during this time. Hi, this is Mike Hauser from Gloversville, New York. Uh, I am an avid researcher and documenter of upstate New York sports history. All that research culminated into a series of monthly columns for the Leader Herald newspaper called Upstate New York Sports Lore. And since, I've started taking those stories and turning them into paperback books so we can further document and post the history, the great sports history of our area. Mike Hauser tells us Fulton County has a baseball and sports hall of fame. And one year, 
Jim Bouton took part in the induction festivities. Jim Bouton was a major league pitcher, uh, most famous for pitching for the Yankees um, and writing the, the controversial tell-all book called Ball Four. And uh, so, so Bouton had pitched for the Yankees in, I think in 62, he won, um, he won over 20 games. So in 63, he won 21 games and he appeared in the world series. And then the following year, he followed that up with another 18 wins, two of them, two additional wins coming in the world series uh, against the Cardinals. But um, after he, well, at the end of his career, uh, he documented the 1970 season where he, he just basically kept a diary of what went on kind of in the locker room and after hours uh, during mm-hmm. the season. And he, he wrote it. It was kind of an expose where he upset a lot of players and he upset the baseball establishment because he, you know, I guess it was a precursor to the press of today where, you know, they're very detailed and they follow everything. And right. that was brand new back then. That was never, never done before. So, uh, Bouton really made a name for himself, uh, turned that into a broadcasting career went on the speaking circuit. And then, um, late in life, he had a, he was about 74 and he had a stroke. And around that time he was really big into trying to over in Springfield mass, but, um, he had, he had had a stroke and as a fundraiser to help raise money for that project, they put on a vintage baseball game, you know, and that's where the two teams will play by the rules of the late 1800s and they'll wear, they'll wear period specific uh, uniforms and use uh, period specific equipment. So mm-hmm. Bouton to help add to the star powder that he suited up and he pitched. So mm-hmm. that led to him getting involved with a, a team called the Hillies vintage team, which evolved into the Watley pioneers uh, out of Western mass. And for the second Fulton County Sports Hall of Fame inductions, rather than doing a banquet, uh, in 2013, we put on a vintage game, and we inducted all of our players between innings. So mm. to add to the star power of that event, uh, Jim Bouton came to Gloversville, and he pitched in the game. And then we we brought Jack McKeon, uh, everybody knows, won the World Series with the Marlins back in 2003, uh, we brought him out of retirement, signed a one-day contract with him to be the manager of the AJ&G team, which was made up of all former Gloversville Little Leaguers. Mm-hmm. So Bouton comes to town, you know, about a year after he'd had a stroke, and he pitched in this game, and it would turn out to be one of the last games he would ever pitch in. Jim Bouton died in 2019. My name is Sarah Patton, and I wrote a novel about the French Resistance called The Measure of Gold. And it's a book that opens as Penelope, my resistance heroine, has just received an urgent letter from her childhood friend calling her to Paris just after the German invasion. Sarah Patton's The Measure of Gold is a historical novel set in World War II with a focus on women spies. Patton says one of those women spies was an American from Baltimore. I suppose the seed for The Measure of Gold started for me about 10 years ago when I was writing and researching another book that was set in World War II, but in America. And during that time, I stumbled on a biography that was called The Wolves at the Door about Virginia Hall, who was an American resistance fighter in France during World War II. Uh, I think more recently, a book 
called A Woman of No Importance has been released, which highlights her amazing accomplishments by Sonia Purnell. But the book I read was The Wolves at the Door. And when I read that book, she referenced all these other women in her network that she had worked with. And Mm -hmm. that book ultimately led me to many other books and stories about women from within France and Europe, but also from other countries who had come to France to help fight the Germans. And because they were women, there was no formal point of entry for them into the war. So the stories were really compelling and really unexpected. For example, with Hall, Virginia Hall, I kept wondering how a woman from a privileged family in Maryland and a wooden leg ended up being one of the most effective spies in the war. Mm -hmm. And all the stories were similar to that about these women, and they were incredibly brilliant and brave and filled with love and betrayal and revenge and all the kinds of plot twists that lend themselves to a compelling plot in a novel. But honestly, I think what kept me reading all these stories was how unexpected and heroic these women were. One by one, as they entered into France and met various spy agents, they were told quite explicitly how they would likely not live more than six months how if they, when they were caught, not if, they would be horribly tortured before they were killed, and how they were ultimately would never be known or acknowledged for the work they did. And I think that the sort of raw heroism of what I saw in that drew me to the story as a writer. So I actually set aside my other manuscript for a while to write my own female spy story called The Measure of Gold. Now, the woman that you mentioned, I'd not... Uh, heard of her. Virginia Hall was her name. She's from Maryland. Yeah, she's from Maryland. A a book came out recently by Sonia Purnell about her that highlighted, I was actually really excited to see it come out because it highlighted her amazing story. She was one of the most uh, renowned spies of the war. The butcher of of Lyon, Barbara Kloss, actually sought her, hunted her for two to three years of the war and they called her the limping lady. They only, they didn't know who she was, but they knew she had a limp. She actually had a a wooden leg that was like almost 10 pounds in weight and because um, she'd had a hunting accident when she was much younger. Um, and they knew that about her. And so, um, anyway, Sonia Purnell wrote this beautiful book about her um, that highlighted some of her um, story, mm-hmm. which was, I think, important because she was, she actually has a, um, part of the Pentagon, there's a um, training camp that they named after her, um, and she en- ended up joining the CIA after the the war because she was so renowned and effective at, at her work. Really? So she did survive the war? She did. She married a French man and then moved back to America after the war and barely spoke about what she did. Um, and people referenced her in her stories who talked about her in the CIA, which was, you know, at that time... A, a boys club. And now, a story about the New York State Thruway. It is one of the greatest public construction events in the 20th century in, in any state as far as length and magnitude and cost and so on. That's history professor Bruce Deerstein back in 2015 on the importance of the New York State Thruway, a 1950s-era superhighway that crosses the state. The construction was spearheaded by former Governor Thomas Dewey. A thruway user of today 
And a Historians podcast listener is Bob Burns, who frequently travels the thruway between Rochester and Albany and has questions about the thruway. How interchange decisions were made. You, you want to, you'd like to know how they decided to put a thruway interchange in Amsterdam as opposed to somewhere else, let's say, right? Sure, and during all those visits, I, or all those uh, trips on the thruway, I, um, I, I probably should have been listening to your podcast, but often I was just uh, observing the roads and uh, thinking about the interchanges and thinking about the road uh, planning itself and wondered if the interchanges were decisions were made based on a population center to keep them as close to large population centers, or was it major north south intersections that uh, were the determining factor. And then the cynical part of me tells me that it, it might have been uh, donors to Governor Dewey's uh, re-election campaign uh, that might have indicated where a certain uh, exit might be uh, adjacent perhaps to their home. Uh, there's an old Rochester story. Uh, the thruway uh, is actually quite a bit south of uh, Rochester. And there's stories uh, for years in Rochester that uh, Governor Dewey was having some kind of a disagreement uh, with Rochester politicians at the time, and that's why uh, the exit is so much further south. So, yeah, I just, uh, again, during those uh, long trips, uh, wondered about that. And at at some point, I I looked to see if there was a book uh, or some documentation about the planning in the late 40s, early 50s, and there really is not. Um, and if uh, this podcast finds that there is such a book, uh, I'll, I'll be extremely happy. But, uh, yeah, I wondered about uh, how those intersections were yeah. decided. Interchanges were decided. And, in fact, your question about uh, Governor Dewey perhaps having some reason that was political to move that the Rochester uh, exits so far south of Rochester. He was intrigued with that question, but again, he didn't know the answer to that and said he had never never heard that. But it's noticeable, and I used to make the trip all the way out to Buffalo quite frequently when my son uh, went to uh, college at the University of Buffalo, and it, it is kind of, it's sort of odd. I, I think I've only gotten off in Rochester a handful of times, but it's like, it, do, it doesn't go anywhere near Rochester, does it? No, you have to tra- travel quite a bit further north uh, to get to the city. And, and you know, th- that might not be a true story. I, I also read or maybe saw a photograph uh, of Governor Dewey when, when that section of the thruway was open, uh, actually in a, in a hotel or in a somewhere in Rochester, kind of cutting the ribbon, uh, so to speak, when they opened the, the uh, inter- interchange. So... Uh, it might not be true, it, uh, but it is odd that unlike Utica and certainly Albany and uh, Syracuse and Buffalo, uh, the, it is not situated close to a major metropolitan area. If you know why Rochester's throughway exit are so far from that city, please send an email to bobcudmore at yahoo.com. John Warren is founder of New York Almanac an online source for historical and other information on New York State. I check it every day. John, who lives in the Adirondack Park, wrote an essay on how the park was motorized by trucks and autos and four-wheelers and snowmobiles. When the park was created in 1885, people 
weren't thinking of motorization. They certainly weren't. Uh, they were, you know, in uh, 1885, when the Forest Preserve was created, there was no motor vehicles. And it wasn't until about the 1920s or so that, that, uh, that motor vehicles really began to invade the Adirondacks and the Adirondack Park. So the park, was, which was created in the 1890s, was, a, was around for about 30 years before, uh, before, before mo- uh, any kind of motorized vehicles really uh, began to be used extensively in the park. Mm-hmm. Now, did the arrival of motor vehicles mean the arrival of a lot of visitors or kind of a flood of visitors? Yes. Well, the uh, flood began as a trickle. At the beginning, in 1900, there was only about 8,000 automobiles registered in the United States. Um, but people did have an interest in getting out into the woods. But by 1929, there was 23 million automobiles owned by one in five Americans. So the, um, the idea that you could get into the family car uh, and drive into the into the wilderness, basically, or into the into the wildlands of northern New York, um, really took off then, um, beginning around in the mid mid nineteen twenties. Uh, and at the same time, there was a interest in in motor camping. You know, uh, there was about five million auto campers. They were called in the in the early nineteen twenties, and uh, more than three times that many by the end of the decade. Before the Great Depression, they say about ten to fifteen percent of Americans were auto campers. So it was it was fairly popular. Uh, perhaps even, I guess, more popular than today uh, in per- by, by percentage. Really? You mean the equivalent or the 1920s equivalent of a of a coach or a, a, a trailer that you pull with your your pickup truck? Right, or modified vehicles, or uh, you know, uh, small trailers, and or just or just loading all of your stuff into the back of the uh, sedan and uh, heading out. In those days, I mean, how did you get into the woods? I mean, were there roads? Yes. Well, the uh, in the 1930s, there was a there was the Civilian Conservation Corps program, and they built a lot of roads. But even before that, uh, the program that that program was based on was a New York program. Uh, FDR, of course, brought it from his governorship of New York to uh, the federal government as the Civilian Conservation Corps. But there was a state program before that, and they put together, they put people to work building lots of roads in the Adirondacks, mostly for fire suppression, but also access. And they built, uh, uh, they built some, in 1920, they built uh, three, at least three of the big campgrounds, uh, Sakandaga and uh, the one in North Hudson, uh, Sharps. Mm -hmm. Bridge, I think it's called, and also the one at Cascade in the Cascade Lakes, which is now a picnic area, but was at the time one of the first campgrounds. So those those were flooded. The one in Sagandaka particularly became uh, very popular and filled up in the first years. Uh, uh, by 1923, uh, there was 1,500 people a day in that Sagandaka River campground in, Nor- in Northville. My name is Jim Kaplan. I'm a uh... A lawyer, a previous walking tour guide. I'm the past president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and now an active writer for the New York Almanac, the New York City Correspondent. Uh, This uh, article is uh, one of, I've actually done about 18 over the 
last six years. Uh, this article is about the South Street Seaport and the current controversy over a proposed uh, building by the Howard Hughes Corporation, which would exceed uh, the current zoning requirements. South Street Seaport is on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Jim Kaplan describes South Street Seaport's importance in history. The South Street Seaport, which is on the east side of uh, Lower Manhattan, was in the early 19th century, uh, up until uh, probably around the Civil War or thereafter, the major shipping port of New York City. It was there that the clipper ships, the sailing ships, uh, birthed and went, and it was a very, very active center for the city's commerce. Uh, mm-hmm. And the city, over the uh, after the opening of the Erie Canal, certainly became the center of shipping in many ways in the United States. So most goods went to and through the South Sea Seaport on the, the tall clipper ships, as they were called. So it was very, very important in the city's history. There was a, a shipping line, I thought it was interesting in your story, called the Black Ball Line, and they came up with, the, what a concept, of uh, sending ships across the Atlantic from Europe to America on a schedule. I guess people didn't do that at first. You know, they would just send a ship from Europe when it got full. Yeah, people would wait. You would have to wait for... Uh a ship to fill up its hole uh, with goods from uh, before it went to Europe. And that, in many ways, uh, created problems because you didn't know exactly when the ship was going to go or if it was going to go. In in 1818, a group of uh, Quaker shipmasters led by a guy named Jeremiah Wright came up with the idea that they would send the ship from New York to Liverpool on a fixed schedule, whether it was half full or not half full. In fact, right dramatically, or the, the sailing of the first ship opened his hull and showed that it was only half full. But that uh-huh. proved very, very important uh, because it meant that a merchant in New York or elsewhere would know when the ship was leaving and thus could be sure that his goods would get there on a fixed schedule. Even more important was that without, uh, before the transatlantic cable, information would come from Europe on a fixed schedule. So it gave New York merchants in many ways a significant advantage over merchants in other parts of the country because they got the information on conditions in Europe, whether mm-hmm. uh, the wars, whatever, uh, uh, first. So, so that was a, uh, it was really a more, even more the information that was important as so much as the passing of the ships, that that proved to be a very important innovation. Mm-hmm. Of course, once the transatlantic cable mm-hmm. came in, it was less important. No, nothing is forever, though. And and when and why did the South Street Seaport area decline? Well, uh, there was much more competition in the uh, late 19th century from other modes of transportation, particularly railroads. Uh, steamships were better birthed on the west side of Manhattan on the docks. So it was, uh, South Street was a very good protected port for sailing ships. So little by little, commerce began to uh, migrate, you might say, to the, to the west side of Manhattan, as well as uh, 
uh, things became, uh, from an information standpoint, they, with the uh, transatlantic cable, that became more important. Uh, uh, and uh, so it slowly began to decline. It didn't decline immediately. They were still, uh, even into the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, sailing ships that were used for cargo. And the area was still something of a, uh, a shipping area, but not as significantly as it had been in the early part of the century. My name is Roland Vineyard. I'm a resident of Mohawk Valley. And many years ago, I was a very good friend of Felonine Pete Hauer, who was a renowned at the time speleologist who studied Saltpeter Caves. We shared many adventures in that together. And in 1975, there was a series of events that culminated in his death and the death of a, of a young man. When I learned about it, I was farming and hadn't seen Pete in a little while. This came as a shock to me, as it did to all of his very large circle of friends. And that kind of started the investigation that I've uh, undertaken. began in 1975. I picked up again in 2012, and it's been pretty much nonstop until the book was published uh, this year. Roland Vineyard sells farm real estate and lives in Sprakers, New York. He's a folk musician and a caver. What's a caver, Roland? Caver in the vernacular is a spelunker, a person who explores caves either for his, the adventure that he receives there or perhaps uh, in conjunction with the science. Hmm. What draws people to exploring caves? I, mean, I, I must confess I've, I've many fears and phobias, and I think I, I've been in Howe Caverns, but that's about it. The, uh, to me, it's the sense of adventure, of going where very few people have ever gone before uh, or sometimes nobody has ever gone before seeing a place that nobody may never see again. Well, this can be dangerous, right? I mean, that's just part of... Part it of can the... be dangerous. I've also felt that probably the most dangerous part of caving is the road trip getting there. <laughs> okay. Right. But, yes, uh, and there are many safety precautions that we've learned to take and routinely take. The story we're going to discuss uh, with uh, Roland Vineyard involves another caver named Pete Hauer. Is your book a work of nonfiction, or is, is this, by any stretch, uh, like a, a novelized version of Pete Hauer's life? It... Uh... No, it's not novelized. It is uh, historical fiction. I hope it's historical nonfiction. I'll get that right. Uh, completely researched from primary sources. Uh, but I didn't write it to sound like a history book. I wrote it to uh, in a more popular style. The book is called The Ballad of Pete Hauer. It was caves that Pete loved the best. Um, we'll give you information, and then we'll, we'll have a link on our uh, website uh, to where you can buy the, uh, buy the book. And the story in, involves, again, Pete Hauer. How did you meet Pete? Okay, I was a historian at Gettysburg National Park uh, as a summer job and had just started cave exploring and it wrote to a friend of mine to see if he would like to do it on my days off but of course he was working i was a junior historian so i didn't get weekends but he told me oh right there in gettysburg is a really well-known caver why don't you meet with him 
So I did, and uh, we began caving together uh, for quite a few years. And that was Pete. That was Pete. Now, uh, Pete, I, I note, was is my age, or would it be my age if you were alive today? Born in 1945. I kind of gather you're younger than that, or, or no? Uh, just a few months. Oh, a few he months. He was born late 45. I was born early 46. At you, at some point you gravitated to West Virginia. Is that because West Virginia has a lot of caves? Yes. It's, it's, it's a beautiful state. Uh, very pretty there. I like the people. Uh, it's farmland. It's not the best. So you met Pete Hauer and he was uh, like yourself, kind of an academic, wasn't he? he, he yes. Or, or what uh, was he? He was, he's published a, huge, vast number of articles, especially for somebody of his age. That's Roland Vineyard. You've been listening to a special highlights edition of the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.